purpose is this funny, ambiguous word. It's almost as if we have to declare some perfect sentence, eureka moment of our purpose. And so I think in the way we try to define purpose in the book as an ever-evolving definition of contribution plus passion. And if you can track to those two things and you give somebody a concrete way to understand it, then I think people realize, oh, right, I have it. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am speaking with and learning from Amy Jen Sue. She's written a fantastic book called The Leader You Want to Be, Five Essential Principles for Bringing Out Your Best Self. So we talk about those principles and some specific learnings from those principles. She runs a very successful CEO leadership boutique coaching practice in North America. She founded it over 20 years ago, Paravas Partners. And she's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, which is how I came across her work in the first instance. I really enjoy my conversation with Amy. I think we dig into some interesting topics, particularly around purpose. And have you worked out yet what your purpose is? And if you have, how do you deliver that purpose through yourself or through others? And where is it that your energy your vitality is dripping away. Where are you still scratching an itch and really you need to get some self-control to maximize your energy and your impact in the world? Great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Hi, I'm Amy Jen Sue. Excited to be here. I'm an executive coach and co-founder of Paravis Partners, a boutique executive coaching and leadership development firm. Why did you start that firm? What were you doing before it's a long time ago. What have you, 20 years you've been executive coach? 20 years, two decades. Yes. Hard to believe. Prior to that, I started my career with PepsiCo when they own the restaurant businesses. So I was a strategic planner with Taco Bell Corp for many years. And then I also worked for Booz Allen and Hamilton in management consulting, strategy consulting. So grew up in business. And I found that in those roles, I always just love the people part and the developing others, and kept gravitating towards that. So at some point, I think you wake up and you wonder, hey, what was I actually made for? Like, do what you're made for. And so made the switch 20 years ago before executive coaching was a thing, and hung up the shingle. And here I am today. Yeah. Very good. And what type of individuals, companies, locations, where do you get the most personal joy? 
This work is such a privilege. I can't even tell you. Some mornings I wake up and pinch myself that I get to work with the leaders and executives that our team supports. And really the sweet spot through the years is cultures and organizations who recognize that talent and culture are real competitive differentiators. And that as you scale a business, you have to scale people with it. And so we are always looking for organizations and leaders who have a growth mindset, who recognize that as a business expands and its capabilities expand, you have to expand people too. So that really tends to be where the sweet spot is. Are the challenges you see around culture things that you'd experienced yourself at, at PepsiCo or Bruce Hamilton? I think in any organizations of any size, you have strategic challenges. Where's the business heading? Where are we today? Where's our ambition for tomorrow? So there's all the usual business sets and issues of structures and capabilities and process to get there. And then there's talent. How do we keep finding the right people on the bus? And once we have them, how do we keep growing them and have talent from within and also keep recruiting really great people from the outside and integrate them? So I think just even from early parts of my career till now, I'm fascinated by these organizational systems of people and process and strategy and how does all that come together? That sort of recruitment, who's your sort of poster child for that? It might not be a client you've worked with, but it might be. You might not even want to name them, but I don't know. I just want to dig into some of that process. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the organizations we work with, again, are very intentional and very clear that talent is important. And as they think about who's the organization they are and the culture they're building, I think that then ripples into their HR and recruiting and their structures and systems and processes for people. I will give a shout out to, I sit on the board of an amazing company called SRS Distribution, where we're in the roofing, landscaping, and pool businesses. And I am so proud to be part of that organization in terms of how it recruits and treats its people. It is truly a people first, one fight, one family, and really would run through a brick wall for any of those folks at that organization. What are sort of some of the activities in recruitment that differentiate them? What is it that they do differently? I think high performance organizations, again, are very thoughtful about the type of people they're looking for. They're thoughtful about the job specifications and mandates required. And then they involve many people in the interview process. And they're thoughtful about what those interview questions are. And they're not only screening for capability or experience, but they're also trying to get a sense of the person, their character, their values you know, how they treat others and engage with others. So they look at people as a holistic person as they come through the door. Do they do any type of tests at all? I think some organizations have moved towards doing tests and screening and assessments. And again, what I think is best practice is if that's in alignment to your overall strategy and who you are and how you are looking to recruit people and making sure that funnel is wide at the top of the funnel. And in today's world where diversity and equity and inclusion is very important, making sure that we're aware of our biases and and staying very open to all folks who could be best for the job. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that the way in which actually testing can help you avoid your bias by highlighting candidates who in many ways meet your criteria, which you might have passed on 
I think if used appropriately and objectively that way versus sort of labeling or stereotyping. You've written a fab book around people who aspire to be better leaders. Handbook for people who aspire? Was that your aim? The aim, the leader you want to be. I think that's a question for all of us. Who's the leader you want to be at work, at home, of your work stream? I don't subscribe to that leadership's a title. I believe it's a question we can all sit in and to say, in a world that has become increasingly complex, it's been a tough two years with the pandemic. And so really sitting in the question of who's my best self and who's my reactive self, Mm -hmm. how do I come to accept the whole lot of that? But if I have a little more awareness and compassion and agency around that, what a better difference or contribution I could potentially make in the world, in my community or with my family. The prerequisite is people have decided that they could be better. They have some curiosity about themselves. Yeah, I think as I mentioned earlier, in terms of my sweet spot, I'm a very high growth mindset. We can be lifelong learners. I think early in my own journey, a teacher said to me, you get yourself in trouble when you feel like you have to be the expert. But what would life look like if you became an expert learner? And that has stuck with me for a really long time. Uh-huh. What does that mean to you? If you created a system or is it, is it time spent at the coalface or what, what does being a lifelong learner look like? A lifelong learner to me is being able to, number one, in some ways, be a witness of our own experience and be able to, in some ways, step back and go, hey, what was that all about? And, you know, kind of my latest lens that I like to look at the world is there's a difference when I sit in the question of, am I all right? Am I right? Are we all right? You know, what do I like? Which is all potentially different from the question, what is right? And so part of being a lifelong learner is being able to sit in those various places, support yourself as needed, but still as a leader, drive towards integrity or the right solution for the problem at hand. Yeah. Is your lifelong learning, is it, is it mental? Is it physical? Are you in the process of learning some new skills at the moment of some description? I think it's it's probably holistic. I'm, I'm a holistic thinker. And so I do think along many frontiers of life. The latest one for me is in an emotional world of trying to both be present to my emotions, be, be regulated in them. I've been curious about discomfort and what is our relationship to discomfort. The pandemic has brought a lot of discomfort and change that we weren't expecting. And so For me, I think where my learning is taking me is, hey, discomfort in some ways, on one hand, could be a great sound bell for something's out of alignment to my life, and I need to pay attention to that or potentially make a different choice. Or discomfort is simply that I'm someone who likes to ride the edge, try a lot of new things, you're learning, and so I'm going to be uncomfortable, and that's okay too. That's probably been the place I've been really curious about lately. What is this feeling of discomfort and how do I make friends with it differently? Uh-huh. Have your clients, how's your business responded to the pandemic and it's ebbing away? The pandemic's been so interesting. There's been so many chapters. I think chapter one of the pandemic, if you think just two years ago when things shut down, <laughs> we weren't really sure how organizations were going to respond. 
And our organization was very lucky that we serve clients who actually decided to double down on leadership and executive development. And so the last two years, our team has been on full overdrive, over demand, over subscription as organizations are trying to shore up their talent and really provide support for folks. That said, I think a lot of organizations have gone through a lot of change in the last two years with not being at work and being remote to now lots of questions around return to work and how to do that safely and comfortably for folks. So uh, it's been quite the two years to observe and be a part of. Yeah. And when did you publish the book? The book came out in 2019. Okay. So before the pandemic, but interestingly, still fresh at the point where the business world has got something else on its mind. It's so interesting. The book dropped and came to market November of 2019. So just, you know, for a few months before the world shut down. And I was actually on a book tour traveling to a different city almost twice a week up until when things closed. Uh, So really different time, for sure. For the listeners who won't have read it, or some of them won't have read it, certainly, you lay out a series of principles that you think are fundamental for somebody who wants to be their a better leader. Perhaps you could outline that and we'll dig into a few of those. The five principles for being your best self really were selected. The first three, when you think about a leader's capacity and bandwidth. So as the world around me grows or changes, what does that imply for the first principle, my, my purpose? How do I stay close to an ever-evolving contribution in terms of the impact I want to have, and also that which gives me energy, which changes and evolves over time. So how do we keep resetting the compass and resetting our priorities appropriately? The second principle around process follows very short suit because that's your operating system. So how do I manage my time? How do I protect my energy so that I can meet that purpose and realize what's most important and critical in front of me? And then the third principle is around people. We can't clone ourselves. There's just not enough hours in the day. So the mental shift of, hey, I raise my game as I raise the game of others becomes super critical for bandwidth, capacity, and capability. The final two principles, Dominique, are really an internal game. The fourth principle is around presence. Again, I mentioned earlier around emotional regulation being so critical because all of us want to scratch the itch. We all have an Achilles heel. Something where finding the pause between stimulus and response is very difficult. So what is that for you as a leader? And as the role grows or the organization changes, what's that itch that sometimes you just should not be scratching right away? And then the fifth principle, which is most near and dear to my heart, was around peace. And Harvard Business Review and I you know, talked about this at length, how critical it was to include this chapter. It's called Loosen Your Grip. Because I feel like I've spent 20 years working with amazing people who work so hard, have tremendous external success in the world, and yet are not at peace with themselves or have trouble finding life satisfaction and always riding that edge of, I seem to have so much, and yet that point of peace within myself feels just a dial click away. Yeah. Where did you end up with that on that last chapter? Because it, do people grow out of the drive or, you know, cause there, there's often, I see people who are externally successful and there is a, 
fundamental, either a fracture or there's something in their history that drives them. You know, either they've got um, the way in which that they see the world perceives them. You know, they it just drives them to be more or do more. And do you see people, those individuals, being able to overcome that and dial that back down and gain that inner peace? I think there's a value to our dissatisfaction. I'm one who can go to dissatisfaction pretty quickly, and that can drive innovation, right? It can drive this desire to be a lifelong learner. It's just how do we as people and humans find that point of diminishing return where that level of drive and striving takes away from the ability to have gratitude or contentment or even celebrating with a team and taking a victory lap when we've hit a milestone? So I don't know that it's ever um, a pendulum swing. I think just over time, we start to settle into our own shoes. We begin to realize we're not at zero. You're sitting on a platform and foundation of a ton of success. And as more of that comes, I think the motivation towards how does this make me look shifts towards how do I serve and bring more of that to others. Yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting. I was listening to some of the Jim Collins stuff a couple of weeks ago and looking back at Good to Great, one of the things they did was an analysis of of the CEOs they looked at, how many of them per, their personal lives were a train wreck and only half of them. <laughs> so half of them managed to be the CEOs of amazing companies and have uh, an intact personal life. The other half were as you'd expect, but I was surprised that it was 50-50 and at least 50% of them seem to have got the balance right. That does give all of us hope that we can have an ambition for a full life. In some ways, my own mission as a coach is, how can I help others be who they're meant to be and make the difference they're meant to make without this tremendous sacrifice towards our health, our relationships, a broader life that we're living? Yeah. It's interesting. When you were talking about who the book was for at the beginning, you were saying anybody can be a leader. And then principle three, success through others. That's fascinating because I so often, not so much CEOs, or certainly CEOs of mid-sized companies, but maybe CEOs of startups when they're still sub a couple of million and it's the CEO and 12 people or managers of departments or teams so often, you know, they've got the job they've got because of their expertise in the job. Yes. And and they are trying to outwork the task. And and if the company's growing, the task's growing, and they they either crash and burn, or often it doesn't occur to them spontaneously that I now have to scale through success of others. You know, they feel as though the, the task is to get the team's job done. And and sometimes I say to people, look, you know, your ta- your task is to make yourself redundant. Yes. Somehow though, there's an ego shift that needs to happen. And when you wrote that, were you thinking about examples of people that you've worked with or challenges you've seen and helped people solve? I, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head. I have seen this over and over again, and it does happen at different scales and different points. I think you're a founder and entrepreneurs of smaller businesses because in the early years, there is so much scrappiness. There is so much about rolling up your sleeves that's valued. But the point where we begin to believe we're absolutely indispensable is where we get ourselves in trouble. Or as you mentioned, I love that assumption that, hey, I can outwork anything. Yeah. 
but there will hit a point where the business's complexity or what needs to get done grows beyond that. So I have found similar to you that that demarks such an incredible shift in leadership that when we were writing that chapter, definitely many, many examples were coming to mind and at all different scales. I mean, I was working with a client last year and and I just said to somebody, you know, your job is to make yourself redundant. And then it, it just went deathly quiet. And the next week I spoke to her again and she said, that mind shift was all I needed to overcome, like to feel as though there was light at the end of the tunnel, as opposed to it, I was drowning. And in some ways it becomes freeing. Yeah, totally. Nothing right. else changed. But all of a sudden it was like, oh, I, I can promote this person and I can delegate. To, and all of a sudden just opportunity appeared that she hadn't seen before. It was like a light bulb went on. It was very, very, very powerful. Oh, I love those moments. And it's amazing because it's only until we have those other people in place who are hoping to grow and get more responsibilities and opportunities that suddenly now, if you go back to principle one, our purpose can then evolve and change and we can take on new things that we previously weren't able to either because we didn't have the bandwidth in the system. How many people before you start working with them, have a clear sense of purpose? I think purpose is this funny, ambiguous word. It's a little intimidating. It's almost as if we have to declare some perfect sentence, eureka moment of our purpose. And so I think in the way we try to define purpose in the book as an ever-evolving definition of contribution plus passion. And if you can track to those two things and you give somebody a concrete way to understand it, then I think people realize, oh, right, I have it. It's right there. I can tell you right now the difference I'm trying to make and where the highest impact is in my job or in my life. And when you ask people the question, where do you get energy? Like, what are the things you do when you're done? You kind of feel that extra, you know, hop in your step where it gave you energy. It didn't drain you. Yes. And if you just ask people to make those two lists and see where the Venn diagram intersects, it's a pretty good mark of purpose at this moment. Yes. And sometimes it then overlays with the the thing we've just been talking about, about enabling it through others. It, it's If you've got it, then it's unlikely you're going to be able to deliver it on your own. Yes. Because oftentimes when you really push someone to say, what's your highest and best use? Like, where's the organization now at 100 million? And then if we imagine that the aspiration is in a few years, you want to be a $350 million business. Yeah. What's that contribution then need to be? And in that delta, what are you excited to learn and how do you want to grow? And then therefore, how do you realign your team? Yes. And certainly if you're the CEO, what is it that only you can do? Right. That question of what's your highest and best use? Yes. And juice, right? So I'm always listening for what's the use juice equation for this given person? Go on, explain what those two things are for you. Right. So your highest use is what you uniquely bring to the table Uh and what the organization, if I were to go interview your board or your employees or your direct reports, you know, what is Dominique's highest and best use? Where do you hope he's spending time and energy? It yields a lot of great information. 
And at the same time, when I ask you, well, what gives you juice? Again, this question of what gives you energy? And I'm look, listening for the intersection of those two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spending your time on the things that are high impact that you enjoy doing. And that's a bit like the scratch the itch, isn't it, that you talk about? It might give you joy, but it's not what the board are hoping you're doing. And it's not what you're uniquely talented at. So, you know, have some self-control. Yes. You could almost do a two-by-two of use and juice. And if it's juice only, mm, you might need to elevate or give a little thought to that. And $100 million is an interesting number because it's there is a big transition between sort of $100 million and $300 million. Uh, that's sort of multiples of 10 and 3, where the CEO really has to be a full-time CEO at $100 million if they want to get through that and not be doing the thing that they used to do, marketing or sales or whatever it was that finance, whatever it was that they have some functional skill in, get out of that and get somebody who does it better than them. 100% agree. There's something really interesting when you see a business hit that mark and you say, okay, what's it going to take to get to the next step function? Uh, there's a big pivot for all the leaders at the top. Yeah. Well, and uh, well, it's and it's interesting because it's the team at 10 million is so often not the team at 100 million. 100% true too. <laughs> you've had that you've sort of had a series of generalists come together and get the team to 10 million and it's like okay now it's about growth then isn't it it's about growth and specialization can i take a more specialist role and grow into it as it gets bigger of your five principles is do you find one of them harder for people to do you know what's interesting is it's really by person it's fascinating to me where people orient there's usually one principle that you'll see a leader naturally gravitate towards mm -hmm. and one where they have like an allergic reaction. So it's funny. One of the chapters where I see that most prevalent is the process chapter. For some folks, it's like, oh, I love process. I have my Outlook calendar. I have my calendar managed to the minute. You know, I have my assistant like fully working with me in tandem on that. And then I have other uh, leaders who will say, oh, stop talking to me about process. And it feels like a cage when really we all need to find the right a kind of process and systems which allow us to be free. Or get some help. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm always fascinated by the reaction to that particular chapter from folks. Either they sort of love it or they have a love-hate relationship. Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? There's the process feels like it's doing at a sort of 500 feet, 1,000 foot level, as opposed to maybe strategy, which feels like it might be 20 or 30,000 feet up. And I often I see people, it comes to maybe where they get their serotonin hit from. Yes. You know, some people have a thought and it's like, my job here is done. I have had a thought. And other people, it's like, no, no, that's, I now got to get something and do it. People on that, on that spectrum, particularly the people at either end do have that binary view of of process. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, it shows up in other ways, right? The You can then almost correlate it to the leaders who, as you mentioned, would love to have the discussion around the art of the possible and have a telescopic view on the business versus those who orient more in the day-to-day -day reality, operational reality, where are the risks. And really leading a business requires that that we're able to hold both. Yeah. If you look at CEOs that you've worked with over 20 years, have they tended to be process phobic or is it if it's general that people would maybe find that chapter the 
the one that they have an allergic reaction to the most. Are most CEOs, do they fall one side of that line? Um, I don't, I think the really exceptional ones I work with understand the value and purpose of process without it becoming weighted down or bureaucratic. I think even in scaling the business, they recognize the need for, in some areas, consistency, where the places in the business or in my life where rinse and repeat actually gains us an efficiency. And yeah. And where in the business or in my life do I absolutely have to preserve customization or local market knowledge or customer differentiation? Um, But I do think CEOs in general, just by the nature of the role, have to be able to hold both the telescopic view. They have to be able to kind of rein that in and think about for annual operating plans, the binocular view and know when to go deep on the business and put on their glasses. But I think the gifted ones can toggle kind of glasses, binocular, telescope as needed. And the scratch your itch chapter. <laughs> is that, is there any, is there a personal itch that you've learned to control or is you continue to battle with? There's probably two, to be perfectly honest. So on the personal side, you know, I have a voracious sweet tooth. Right. Uh, And during COVID, you know, the ability to go downstairs and walk in the pantry. (laughs) Uh, And it's one, just in all seriousness, you know, my family has a a lot of diabetes genetically. And so over time, the doctor's warning bell of you, you actually do need to find the pause point on this is becoming more real as I turned 50 last year. And so issues of health and considerations uh, become important. And then I think on the business side, my professional life, I think people can probably tell even from this dialogue, I kind of love variety. Everything seems shiny and new and interesting. And so I can get way over my skis where kind of ambition, excitement, the upside, I lose track of time, bandwidth, uh, what's reality, Uh uh, which is probably a lot infused in this book around the tension of Wanting to do more, everything seems interesting. (laughs) Uh, And finding the pause and not scratching that itch. Yeah. So what are some of the techniques that you outline in more detail in the book? I do think people will absolutely resonate with whether it is their sweet tooth and, and their optimism. But there's always those things where, particularly if you reflect back on the purpose, and it's like, here's a thing that I'm trying to achieve. And like, where am I just losing time or money or energy or or momentum so that I can just make more progress on this thing that I've decided is important to me? That would be so wonderful. I hope people take that away. And it's it's a lifelong journey, right? Here, here I am, an executive coach and working with people on this every day, and yet so much of the book is autobiographical, <laughs> to be honest, in my own struggle uh, as a human. And, and I hope folks take away that there are a few threads throughout the whole book. One, and I say it again and again, it's just self-awareness, the recognition of, oh, right, here I go, walking down the stairs, <laughs> looking for the pantry. <laughs> and then another theme in the book that threads through is this concept of self-compassion. And how do we be able to observe ourselves in action? And we're about to scratch that itch. And a moment of compassion comes in, I think, that helps us to find the pause. 
there's this wonderful New York Times article called Why Should We Stop Being So Hard on Ourselves? And the research clearly shows that self-compassion is far better for effectiveness, performance, and motivation. But the line in the article that gets makes me stop in my tracks every time is that we're scared that if we're self-compassionate, that somehow we'll become complacent and lose our edge. Well, you see, as you were describing it, I was thinking maybe that feels like at a philosophical level, those people that I know who've been on a Buddhist retreat mm. uh, versus those people who might be suffering from an overdose of Protestant work ethic. Um, you know, one <laughs> is beat yourself because you have sinned again, and the other is show yourself some compassion. It's interesting because I had I got a client that we work with, and uh, I thought they had a really compelling purpose. But they came back from a retreat and they decided that their purpose was just about their ego and that they needed to recast their purpose completely in a way that wasn't self-engrandizing. And so I thought that was, you know, takes that level of awareness on to another degree where it was like, okay, I thought they'd gone on a really interesting journey. That is interesting. It's a thin line. I always say to folks, our superpower and our ego, there's a thin line there, right? So take, for example, somebody who perhaps your superpower is you're highly empathetic towards other people and you can attune to them and you can drive great followership. And there is just this thin line difference between, hey, I'm going to go say yes or help someone from a place of people-pleasing or desire for approval, which is the ego's need to be seen or... Um, approved of versus that's a clear choice and value of generosity. And this is the right place to step in to support another person. How do you get an outside perspective on that? Because often it's in, you've decided that, and I don't mean you with your running down the stairs. How, I, 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 <laughs> as I said it, I thought, I thought you could take that two ways, which is one is how do you get your family to barricade you in your, in your, in your office? <laughs> they so that you tried, believe me. <laughs> take everything out of the pantry and put it, in the, put it in the trash. But do you have some tips on how to bring people in so that they can help you? I think having a strong network of support is absolutely critical the adage of it's lonely at the top is just so true. So I think all leaders and people just spending time to think about who are those mirrors in my life who hold up the mirror even when I don't want to see it and are going to give it to me straight and give me honest feedback. Who are the helicopters in my life that when I've lost perspective and the world feels incredibly myopic or either or, remember to lift me up and out and take a moment to step back and look at the situation with a different set of eyes? And who are the cheerleaders and safe harbors that we can do that with? So important to line up and rally those folks. And that's different than a naysayer or even an enabler. I mean, when I talk to CEOs, that loneliness at the top is often one of those things that draws them to coaching in the first place. But certainly also, lots of clients that we've worked with have been members of EO or Vistage because they get that uh, unemotional third-party view assessment of themselves. And and often that, that external view of a challenge that they're trying to overcome can be really, really helpful. Absolutely. And being with others who I think share a common experience in that role. Amy, what is it that you now know 
that you wish you'd known earlier? One of the things I've been thinking a lot about recently that I wish I'd known earlier is there is a part of every leadership role that just should be challenging. I said earlier, leadership's both a privilege and a challenge. And somebody recently said to me, as she was reflecting on her leadership journey, that in some ways, when she became an executive, of course, every day should have three hard decisions that are not black and white and are ambiguous and gnarly. And that if they were easy to solve, they would have been handled at a the working levels below her. <laughs> you hope. And that every day of her life should have three difficult conversations. And I have to tell you, there's something when I was chatting with this person that I felt so much lighter realizing, right, if I started my day with, as a leader of my firm, of course I'm going to th- face three hard decisions and three hard conversations today, then I'm f- just far less resistant to the day. And I'm actually owning my role a little differently. Okay. I also, hearing you say that there, there are people who don't like difficult conversations or unpopular decisions. And maybe if that's how you feel about it, then there's a challenge there for you to be a leader, to be the most effective leader that you could be. Because that soft stuff is hard. (laughs) It is hard. And oftentimes someone will say, oh, I really want to make it to the C-suite or I want to be an executive. And there's a sense of that's the next step in the career journey. And you have to pause and say, you sure that's what you want? Because really owning that role means the gnarly and the hard. totally. (laughs) And the privilege that absolutely comes with it too. I mean, it goes back to one of your other principles almost about I'm minded of Patrick Lencioni's newish book, The Motive where he said, like, what's your motive for being in a leadership role? Is it because of you and your ego and the status? Or is it because you're in service of the people that you lead? And that absolutely talks to, you know, one of your core principles. Yes. What's what's self-preservation versus leading with purpose and principles? Again, a thin line. (laughs) And often people find themselves in that position of leadership and they've got there and then they've stalled. And the hard thing that now is, well, they've stalled and they're no longer enjoying themselves, if they ever were. <laughs> but they were driven to succeed, so they've got themselves to here. And it's like, now what? Can they learn those other skills or can they go sideways or backwards? Or Fascinating. So if they're stuck, they should pick up a copy of your book, definitely. <laughs> um, what else might they read or what else have you found inspirational or useful or that you recommend to CEOs that you're working with? Dominique, I love that you just mentioned Patrick Lencioni. I think his book, The Advantage, is a must read for every CEO. I even have my own typed up cliff notes of it. I, I find it so valuable in terms of thinking about what it, what it means to align an executive team. Um, and your communications and your meetings. So that's a go-to. The other one, maybe not as known as Peter Block wrote a book years ago called The Answer to How is Yes. And I just love that book. It reminds me, and when I'm working with CEOs, that so much of your role becomes about the why. You're there to share the why. Why are we in the business we're in? Why is it we're going where we're going? Why are we making the change we are? Why does your job play its own special, unique role in getting us to the bigger picture? 
And so that particular book by Peter Block reminds me that so often we jump to the how instead of asking, you know, the why, and is this something we want to do? And then we'll figure out the how together. I was chatting to the author of Turn This Ship Around, whose name escapes me momentarily. He said one of the things he did when he took over this nuclear submarine was, tell me if this is the same thing. People were waiting to be told what to do. And so he said they had to use the phrase, I intend to. So it was taking control as opposed to waiting to be told. Is that the same concept here or is that different? I think it may be a little different. I think the block book is more around, of course, we have to answer the how questions of how long will this take? How much will it cost? All those type of how questions. But that's different than given a concept or an idea or strategy. Are we fundamentally saying yes to that? But I also love this, what you're saying here, which is how do we help those that we're working with understand they have agency and ownership? Yeah, David Marquet. Sorry, David. I've completely forgotten who you were. From yeah. And so agency, that is a great phrase that they have agency. Yes. I think so often we think we don't when we do. Well, and it's, it's funny. I, I was talking to a client that I haven't spoke to in ages the other day, but I, when I first worked with them, their CEO just said, it's like Groundhog Day, Dom. It's like I've had four years of turning up every day and feeling like I'm going to fail again. Even he, even the CEO felt like he had no agency. And when he turned up, the whole company was sort of stuck because he felt he didn't have the answer. Everybody was waiting for the answer to permeate down because that's how the company had previously or, or worked. And it was like, no, no, Everybody here probably already knows the answer if you'll just let them get on with it and we're able to unlock their business. What else have you got? What else? What other books do you um, do you recommend to people? I read a variety. The one I'm about to start is a colleague told me about the six thinking hats. Oh, yeah. So I haven't read it, but I found it fascinating around that there's these six different lenses that we can wear or have as we're looking at any business issue. And so I'm excited to dig into what are these six hats and how can you take any issue and say, if I purposely took that issue and then wore a different hat, would it yield me a different range of answers and perspectives? So that's one. Um, and then, you know, to your point around Buddhist principles, I do do a fair amount of Buddhist reading. And so I've just recently reread Pima Chodron's Start Where You Are, uh -huh. which I love that concept that at any moment we can come to where's my feet on the ground? And let me just start where I am. So rather than being upset that I had chocolate almonds yesterday, like, you know, I wake up and I reset and I'm just going to start where I am and continue to to try to change lifestyle changes. Yeah. <laughs> you can see what's on my mind. Right? <laughs> You've talked to me and worked up an appetite. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for that. What is the one thing maybe that um, people could do tomorrow? I think just starting to tune into who's your best self? What are those adjectives and characteristics? And what are the conditions that help to support that? The conditions, the practices, the people. And you know, really then also exploring who's my reactive self, who is the scratch the itch part of me and, and what's that about? And so if anything, I hope this conversation launches people into some curiosity and inquiry about who they are. That's very good. Thank you. I did an NLP course 
during COVID. And one of the things that I found fascinating in that was that the lady who was taking the course does one-to-one interventions for people. And she said where people have a thing, an itch, that they seem unable to change, she said, ask them what it is about that that serves them. So there will be something about the thing that they can't give up that serves them. So if it's smoking, it might be the social interaction at the back of the office or that there's something that they're getting from it that they say they don't want to do it anymore, but there must be something that's, that they're getting from it. And until they're prepared to say what that is to themselves, then actually they probably can't get past it. So yeah, that's a brilliant tip. Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. Brilliant. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.